welcome, welcome, my veterinary friends. Guys, I am your host, Dr. Andy Rourke, and this is the Kona Shame Veterinary Podcast, gang. I have a really, it's a good episode today. It's super good. Dr. Beth Davidow from Washington State University's College of Vet Medicine is here talking about winter is coming. What can we do to be prepared? Man, I love this episode. I love her blog that it's based on. I put that link down in the in the show notes, her blog is called vetidealist.com. I hope you'll check it out. But without further ado, let's get into this episode. This is your show. We're glad you're here. We want to help you in your veterinary career. Welcome to the Cone of Shame with Dr. Andy Rourke. Welcome, welcome, Dr. Beth Davidow. How are you today? I am just fine. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Oh, it is my pleasure. I am so thrilled to have you here. You are a clinical assistant professor in the emergency and critical care department at Washington State University. You're currently uh, working with students there. You have been a co-founder and co-owner of two multi-specialty and emergency hospitals in Seattle, Washington, and you have also been the Director of Medical Quality for Blue Pearl Veterinary Partners. You are a bad mamma jamma, and I am so happy to have you on here to talk to you because people like you just get me all fired up. So um, thanks for being here. Thank you. I found you. I, I Well, I became aware. <laughs> I didn't find you. I became aware of you um, when I found your blog. It's uh, veterinaryidealist.com. TheVetIdealist.com, and you had an article that I really love that I thought is super useful, and it's what I asked you to sort of come on and talk about here, and it's called, very very succinctly, Winter is Coming, Are You Prepared? I'm nervous. I am a perpetual optimist. I think that brighter days are ahead. I really do. I think vaccine coming next year, uh, you know, it'll take some time, and there will be people who will resist getting vaccinated, and all that stuff will happen, but ultimately, the tide will turn. We are going to push back towards normalcy I think I, I I just I feel good about the future I really do but I think we've got a long slog in front of us in between here and there I am concerned about the the weather I am concerned about when I look at the map and I see COVID cases up north are just through the roof and then I see that creeping south to where I am and now the temperatures here are falling let's talk a, a bit about your blog and let's talk about a, a bit about what we as vet professionals what do we do Uh, knowing that this is coming? Yeah, I think it's really important because we have a number of different things that are important for us. You know, one is we need to protect our staff, we need to protect our clients, and we need to provide really good care for the pets that people rely on in tough times. And so, and we have to keep ourselves safe and as well. And so during these tough periods, we need to be really thinking you know, I think about safety first, but also how to provide really good care while providing safe care. I learned of a kind of hard statistic, which there's a woman named Dr. Annie Wayne, who's a criticalist at Tufts University. And she, during this pandemic, has been surveying multi-specialty hospitals around the country, just asking about how they're responding, how they're working, what things are happening. And one of the things she's been asking is how many people have had a staff member test positive for COVID each month. And last month, 91% of all the practices she's surveying have had somebody test positive in their veterinary hospital. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a pretty 
crazy statistic. It means it's everywhere. And if you don't think it's going to happen in your hospital, you're wrong, most likely. (laughs) And the question is, how do you get it so it doesn't make it so you have no staff and you can't work? How do you make sure those people who work for you, who are the most vulnerable, don't get it? And how do you make sure, you know, heaven forbid, you don't spend it, spread it to clients, you know, or take it home with you? And so I think all of us really paying attention to what are our protocols, how do we emphasize them every day, how do we not let down our guard is super important. You lay out some some basic stuff in your article, but I want to step sort of beyond that into what you what you say about uh, laying down protocols and then staying attached to those protocols. How have you seen that work in practice? People and like I. I'm not making excuses. People get tired, you know, and it and that's just the the truth of it is, and it does. I just finished up a meeting with about four dozen practice owners, and the the story from them was very much like the troops are tired. Yeah, you know, and so we're we're pushing against fatigue. What have you seen that works there? What do you what do you think that struggle looks like? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I think continuing to remind people why we're doing it is really important acknowledging I understand why you're tired and I understand this is hard. I think expressing empathy is really important. Giving people some outlets in some ways, you know, showing them there's a light at the end of the tunnel, we're going to get there, but our part in this is really important. And, you know, I think one of the things Washington State has done really well is we literally have a reminder every week and lots of reminders about why it's so important and you just have to stay on it you know I tell people that quality is not a destination it's a journey and Mm -hmm. certainly I think most of what we do is not something where you do it and you're done it's sort of getting people in the mindset of this is really what we're going to need to do until there's a vaccine and sometimes talking to people about what are the pebbles in your shoe like what's the worst part about this and is there any way we can make it better sometimes just fixing little tiny things can make a really big difference so let me jump in here I, I love that what are the pebbles in your shoe what you know what is the little thing that just yeah that just hurts on the regular that we can fix. Yep. I remember back back in the normal time, my friend Stephanie Goss, who's a practice manager up near Seattle, Washington, tells a story of going into a practice and she went to the front desk and she said, what is the thing? What is the pebble in your shoe? And they said, the printer doesn't work very well. It's frustrating. And it was like, yeah. it's like a $90 purchase at Staples right? for a new printer, you know? And it was, it made this immediate impact. And it's incredible how often it's like, tell me what the pain point is, the little thing. And, and I also love the fact that you push that towards a problem-oriented solution of I'm not trying to vent here I don't you know uh, but what are the things that we could do to maintain our standards and and make life more bearable for you right I mean there's funny little things like you know we think well why don't you want to wear a mask or why do you have your mask down too low or why are you taking it off and you know sometimes like we're wearing KN95 masks at Washington State University but they're getting them different places And sometimes they feel great and sometimes you're just like the end of your day and your ears hurt, you know, from the straps. And Mm -hmm. I think sometimes just saying, okay, that was a bad brand. We got to figure out how not to get those. We're sorry. We're going to try, you know, and so it's simple things. Or when we were originally at the beginning of this wearing cloth masks, okay, those ones didn't fit you. We're going to get lots of different sizes or we're going to have some that tie and some that have the ear straps or... 
okay, those face shields didn't work. Let's try something else. Yeah. So I think some of it is just being willing to try things and then say what works, what doesn't work, and then try something else. And so being willing to kind of work with it till you get what's going to happen. Okay. Can you unpack some more of the protocols that you're using at Washington State? Because you're in clinics. Uh, you, you know, you're educating students. You guys are seeing patients. You mentioned the the Canon Canon A5 masks. Yep. What What else are you guys sort of doing in your hospital? Well, so there's a couple of things. I mean, I think we're not that different from everybody else. So we are doing curbside receiving. Um, so we are only letting clients into the building in very, very rare circumstances. You know, we had a very old dog who was on oxygen and on a gurney that we could not get outside for a final visit. We did let the owners come in to say goodbye. Um, You know, for euthanasia, we do have a setup to to be able to do that safely. But in general, we're talking on the phone a lot and we have a good protocol for how we're receiving clients. Um, We are screening clients before they get there for COVID risk. And so trying to really make sure that we know ahead of time who might be high risk and whose pets might be high risk. And then that gets notified out to everybody who's going out to the car to pick up a patient. And so what we wear is going to be different if we think that they might be high risk. And then we do have room limits is one of the things we've done based on airflow and based on how do we maintain six foot distances among people. And so we've had to, instead of having all of our residents and interns in a single room for doing resident review, we're all on Zoom now because we can't fit all of us in the same room. In ICU, we've had to move our treatment times around so we don't have too many people in our ICU at once. You know, we're wearing face shields as well as the masks when we're spending lots of time, more than 15 minutes, close to each other while we're placing a central line or um, in surgery, they're wearing them as well. So lots and lots of protocols to just try to keep everybody safe. How, how do you do the sort of the COVID screening, the pre-screening? Uh, I think a lot of people probably recoil from that a little bit and go, oh, that, that feels like a, an invasion of privacy to ask. You know, what do you, what do you ask them? So, so yeah, what, what exactly, how does, how does that look? Yeah, so we basically ask, you know, has have you or anyone in your household been diagnosed with COVID in the last month? Are you or anyone in your household currently ill with respiratory signs? And I think those are the two main questions that we're asking. And then we're, if they said, yes, I've got that, then we ask, what are you bringing your pet in for? And does it have to be seen? And if it does, you know, I think what we're really What I'm really worried about personally is there is evidence that cats get COVID from their owners. Mm -hmm. And there is evidence that those cats could have, you know, if you bring them into the hospital, nobody thinks that you can get COVID from your cat, but we just don't know yet. Right. And so what I really want is for those cats or ferrets as the other ones, if they have respiratory signs and they're out of a household with respiratory signs or somebody with COVID positive, that they should be treated as isolation patients and everybody should be in full gowns, gloves, face mask, face shield. Just because you don't want to be the one who finds out that we were all wrong and that, yes, you can get it from a cat, right? That <laughs> yeah. you don't want that oh. to be the reason you're in the paper. Oh, definitely. Yeah, that's exactly. Picture the news crew out front. Yeah, that's always a, that's a, that's a driver in my practice is if I can picture the news crew out front, that influences my decision making. Yes. Right. 
Let's okay. I want to split this this conversation into two things that you lay out in your blog that that I really like. Let, let's talk a little bit more about the human side, and then I want to talk about the the airflow side and, and sort of the uh, environmental side. When you laid out your sort of winter is coming top recommendations, you put flu shot is number one. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think part of this is just us being good citizens on a public health side. And, you know, one of the things that we know is that flu shots work. And we also, one of the things that we found at Washington State is an employee calls you, we do have a system attest station at WSU. And so every day when you walk on the campus, you have to attest. You don't have a sore throat. You don't have a fever. You aren't congested. You don't have other things. And if you say yes to one of those things, they're going to send you for a COVID test. Well, one is if you have flu, you've just made this all much more confusing. And if you'd gotten your flu shot, you know, at least we cut down that risk and it makes it less likely you're going to make missed days at work and it makes it less confusing for everyone besides the fact that we just need to be so careful we don't overload our hospitals and our medical systems that in certain locations are still really really stretched and so I just think get your flu shots it's going to make it more likely your employees are going to get to come to work we're all already having staff issues and so that seems really important to me let's talk a little bit more about the attestations I have not I that's a wonderful word I love that you say use and enforce symptom attestations what does that look like in private practice well I think what it could mean is basically you could do it a couple of ways one is you could have somebody build you an app that Mm -hmm. they get on their phone every day and they basically it has four questions, you know, it says I attest that I am not coughing, I don't have a new fever, I'm not congested, you know, I didn't lose my sense of taste and smell, and I'm fine before I walk into your hospital. And it's sort of like, you can't make everybody do those correctly. But if you say this is really important, it sort of makes everybody take this pandemic more seriously. Mm-hmm. And it also says I we really take the health of all of us as a group really seriously. And I think it makes people think a little bit more carefully about whether they come in or Mm -hmm. not. So maybe you don't have an app. The other thing you could do is as they walk in, wherever your staff entrance is, that they sign off. I've read these and I'm fine today. And, you know, I think people have they're being done all over the place. I think they're, you know, everybody says it's fine to do it. I know some mm-hmm. hospitals that even have a thermometer and you take your own temperature and, it, you know, say I don't have a fever. That's not 100%. We know that asymptomatic mm-hmm. spreaders are definitely part of it, but it at least makes everybody, at least just don't come to work sick. Right, right. It's, it's risk reduction. It may not be 100%, but it's still just common sense. You talk a little bit about lunch breaks and social time in the practice. Can you can you can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, unfortunately, I think one of the things that's really hard is that what we're realizing is that this virus is airborne and that it mm-hmm. sits in rooms that are small with low airflow. And so the probably the way you're going to spread it in your hospital is two people who take off their masks to eat lunch together and are talking and laughing. And what's really sad about this is this is the way all of us decompress during a busy work day. Social interaction is so important for all of us. But in hospitals, there's now studies showing that that's where nurses are getting it. They're like literally not getting it from patients. They're getting it from coworkers in the break room. 
Yeah. And so I just don't think having people eat together in small confined areas is what we need to be doing right now. I mean, it's just the same reason you can't go to indoor restaurants with people that we know that's a source of spread. Yeah. And so I think our break rooms are unfortunately the same thing. Yeah. It's, a, it's amazing. We have these weird double standards in our minds of like, I would never eat in a restaurant, but the break room at work is that's part of the job. And, you know, and, right. and for whatever reason, it seems to fit into a different box. You, you bounce off of that and talk a little bit about clinic branded apparel. And I thought that that was a really neat way to weave those together is, you know, if we, if we're going to encourage people to go outside, to walk and uh, to, to do their socializing, to, to, you know, to, to stroll and decompress that way, as opposed to being inside, we should facilitate that yep. and might as well make your people look good while they're while they're strolling out there and especially you know it, it, we're going to continue to do curbside you're going to have people who are spending a lot of time outside and going in and going out i think we have a certain responsibility to to make that work feasible for them and i think if you're a doctor or practice owner it may not seem like a, that that big a thing but you know if you're a technician making 16 dollars an hour uh, a good winter coat is uh it's a chunk of change yep and so, you know, if, if I think if we want to put our people into those positions, then then supporting them in that makes a lot of sense. So I, I really like that as as one of your as one of your suggestions as well. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about the airflow that you talked about. You know, so you said, yep. hey, we've we've done analyses at Washington State. Uh, we talk about the break rooms and there's there's low airflow and things like that. Well, let's walk through the the uh, facilities equipment that, that that can be beneficial. Yeah, so there's a couple of things. So there was a very interesting article that was in the Atlantic um, a couple of months ago, and basically going through what's the evidence, what do we know? And one of the things we're learning is that airflow and ventilation really makes a difference. And so you know, one of the reasons why we think this pandemic is now spreading through small social gatherings in people's homes and in small indoor restaurants is because the air changes aren't high enough. So in a really well-sealed house, the air changes might be like less than one per hour, while if you could get it up to five to six air changes per hour, which is why you open windows or use fans or other things, the virus doesn't just hang around anymore. You're clearing the air and getting rid of it. So there are things that you can do with your HVAC system, both for improving the airflow and the air changes, or at least understanding what your air changes are in your hospital. But also, um, you can add filters that if you add them up at different MERV levels, you can actually filter out more viruses. And so one of the things I'm just still not really sure of is why we haven't gone through through and why there aren't better CDC recommendations about exactly those things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, many of the recommendations are coming from public health people who are starting to study this. You know, the people who do HVAC and um, heating and air conditioning, they say these work, we know they work, but we aren't spending a lot of effort looking at, you know, office buildings and other spaces and saying, hey, we really should be trying to spend money on these filters. The other thing, though, I think is really interesting is air purifiers work. They also improve airflow, and they do, with HEPA filters, catch viruses. And so if I couldn't improve the airflow and I needed, like, the biggest thing I would be spending money on right now if I had a small hospital is I'd be putting an air purifier in my treatment room. Mm -hmm. Like, I just think 
you know, who knows how well they work, but it's one thing you can do that cuts down the amount of aerosol in your hospital. Um, you've got to get them sized right for the right room. So you might be need several of them, but they're not that expensive. And yeah. it's way cheaper than having somebody out for 10 days. Oh, yeah. And it, send a, it sends a message to the team right. that, you know, that in ownership, we're taking this seriously and, and we're doing what we can do. Yeah. So I definitely think that's something to look at. This is this is great. I, I love your article. I'm going to link to it in the show notes for sure. I hope people will check out your blog, The Vet Idealist. Beth, is there any other parting words of wisdom, things to look out for, anything that you just want to make sure that people remember, Any anything like that that I should hold on to? I guess the other thing I would just say is this is the time to spend a lot of time talking to your staff about are you okay? And then also what's working and what isn't. I have been amazed the times when I make the effort to talk to somebody who's really quiet in my hospital and say, do you have any ideas? And they'll come up with something brilliant Mm -hmm. that just sort of like fixes something for me. And so I would say, and when you implement somebody's idea, it just makes them feel so much more engaged in your hospital. And so I really think this is the time to ask for suggestions, ask for solutions, thank people, and then really look for new ideas. Yeah. What's the pebble in your shoe? I, I love that you said that earlier. That's, that's, I'm, I'm going to put that to use as well. I just think that that's such a great approach and such a great way to do this. Beth, where, uh, where can people find you on the internet out in the world? Yeah, so I'm on vetidealist.com and I blog about ownership, quality, sustainability. And so hopefully you can check me out there and there's a way to contact me through my blog. Perfect. Thanks again. Thanks for being there. Guys, thanks a lot for being with us today. Guys, take care. Be well. Um, I hope to see you back soon. 